1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
2: Welcome to the Cynica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with China. Subscribe to SubChina's Daily Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on the site at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to China's ambitious efforts to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me from stately Goldhorn Manor in the Tony suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, is a man who uh, was recently outed as a Zhang Zemin fetishist. In fact, I think a Zhang Toady, as they say. <laughs> Mr. Ji <laughs> Yumi. Hey, <laughs> uh, yeah. How's life post-vaccination for you, man?
3: Yeah, it's pretty good. I have to say, I, I didn't realize quite how much I miss talking to strangers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, Jeremy, for those of you who don't know him, is notoriously misanthropic. He was a sociopath. <laughs> he was the guy who we always say when I'd want to go get a beer after a taping of the show. Let's not go there no one goes there. There's too many people. That's what it seems to say. (laughs) Anyway, Jeremy, um, this is kind of a tease, actually, because you're not actually going to be co-hosting today, but rather you're you're playing the role of guest because you've written a chapter and a very good one, I thought, for the book that we are discussing today. Uh, This month marks the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. And to mark the occasion, Cambridge University Press has published an excellent volume called The Chinese Communist Party, A Century in 10 Lives. Uh, It has outstanding, contributions from some of the leading historians and scholars of politics working on China today and from Jeremy. The book was uh, edited by Timothy Cheek, Klaus Mühlhan, and Hans van de Ven, And I'm delighted to be joined today by one of those editors who also contributed an essay, Timothy Cheek. Tim is a professor of history at the University of British Columbia and is the author of, among many publications, The Intellectual in Modern Chinese History. Tim, welcome at long last to Seneca. Great to have you. Well, I'm delighted to be here and I'm a fan. Oh, fantastic. Well, I am too. I'm also joined by Elizabeth Perry, who is easily one of the most highly regarded scholars working on Chinese history and politics. Liz is Henry Rosofsky Professor of Government at Harvard University and serves as director of the Harvard Yanjing Institute. She's an incredibly prolific writer who has published some two dozen books more on a wide range of topics on modern Chinese history and politics in English and in Chinese, I should add. Uh, Liz, welcome to Seneca, and great to finally have you on the show.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Well, fantastic. Uh, I'm really glad we could all assemble. All of you are frequently asked to talk about uh, the Chinese Communist Party to audiences that perhaps aren't as familiar uh, with that institution as our listenership is. Actually, our listenership isn't even that well-informed about the party to judge by some of the questions I field uh, from people, you know, who profess to be listeners, but ask me some very strange questions. Uh, So if you had to liken the CCP to any other extant institution or, you know, historical institution that might be, you know, better known and better understood, what would you liken it to? I mean, or is it in its current incarnation simply sui generis?
0: Well, Okay, if you were to ask me, um, first of all, the answer I would give you would be one that uh, my colleague, when I used to teach at the University of California at Berkeley, Ken Jowett, always gave. Oh, um, Ken was a specialist on the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and to him, the obvious analogy was the Catholic Church.
3: Yeah, mm. absolutely.
0: Ken um, himself uh, had grown up uh, in the Catholic Church, And um, he felt that the combination of concern for ideology and concern for organization and control were remarkably similar. I didn't grow up in the Catholic Church. I grew up in the Anglican Church, so a little more relaxed, a little less controlling. (laughs) And uh, probably the most controlling environment I've existed in is Harvard University, um, where everything actually is centrally (laughs) controlled. And there is a myth of faculty governance and um, uh, all sorts of institutions that, in theory, replicate the mass line. But the reality is all the decisions are (laughs) centrally um, determined. And actually, I found existing within the Harvard bureaucracy to be remarkably helpful for understanding some of the operations of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. But I'm sure other analogies come to the minds of our co-authors here.
2: Yeah, Tim. I mean, I I did half expect somebody to come up with the Catholic Church. I've I've used that one myself. Yeah. Well, um, Tim, you know, but Harvard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was that was a new one for me. Yeah, um, me too. Me too. Uh, uh,
4: I'm with I'm with Liz and with Ken the uh, at the Catholic Church, and I find it most useful for exactly the reasons that Liz gave. And it, but being a historian, I say I think more of the Catholic Church historically. Uh, when it was uh, saving souls, burning sinners, and running armies.
2: Ah, right, right, right.
4: And uh, the you know when uh, if you think of the uh, uh, early modern period, uh, and so the the party it is a bit like that. It's helpful to think about because uh, we easily get into sort of very dark terminology about uh, um, about the Communist Party and totalitarianism, and uh, it's uh, with the Catholic Church we have dimly mixed
2: feelings. It does some good things and it does some bad things. That's right. That's, that's very well put. Jeremy, you want to weigh in here?
3: I absolutely agree with the Catholic Church. I think that's the best way to describe the Communist Party to somebody who doesn't know anything about it. I think the mafia is also uh, another good way. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it's very secretive organization, very hierarchical. Uh, they do provide goods and services you know exactly. uh, mafia organizations often do necessary things for immigrants that sure. uh, immigrant communities that the government isn't providing as the muslim brotherhood does and- mm. uh they are organized they have a a code of absolute loyalty if you cross them you know uh there's a bullet with your name on it so uh, i i think that that That's pretty good. Um, You know, I know there's a side of you that would hate that analogy because uh, uh, the the first thing that springs to mind is, you know, the worst aspects of the mafia. But the mafia, you know, uh, mafia organizations, uh, criminal organizations, triads, they exist for a reason. So
4: a good
2: mafia. Okay, let's get into the book, and and I want to ask you guys how the volume came together. I mean, it made sense, of course, to want to do some sort of an anthology commemorating the party at its centennial, but how did you settle on this decade-by-decade approach, and an approach that centered on individuals who sort of represented the zeitgeist of each of the decades?
4: Well, it started a, a, a number of years ago, about three or four years ago, and Liz will remember that we invited you to Berlin, I think, in August of 2018 and you and Hans were about the only two who couldn't make it but were interested. We were, uh, Klaus and I were trying to pull together people interested in the Communist Party looking forward to the 100th anniversary and saying, well, Xi Jinping, if he's done nothing else, has reminded us that the party is not going anywhere. And uh, what are people writing about? So we brought people together from China. Uh, that, we had a couple Chinese scholars from PRC at that time, which was great. Uh, in fact, one of our contributors, Xu Jilin uh, and um, Ishikawa from Japan and others.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: And we were just simply overwhelmed because there's excellent new research being done in the last 20 years uh, by scholars inside China. And um, to do a comprehensive was beyond us. And so I didn't know what to do. And then Han said, why don't we do something like the BBC uh, History of the World and 100 Objects?
2: Uh-huh.
4: And, uh-huh. and my answer was. We all would like to write a book like Timothy Brook, but we know we can't, but we could write a chapter.
2: Right, right, right. We
4: decided one person, one decade, to try to show the change over time. My big shtick is contingency and that each ideological moment or each decade
2: can be quite different. Indeed. Quite different, but then there's still somehow are themes that, that emerge when you look at the book sort of in total. Um, And so let's get into the content of the book itself, um, to which all three of you contributed chapters. The first two essays, for example, um, and we could speak of them kind of together because they both look at uh, chapters in the forging of, well, United Fronts, right? The first and the second United Fronts between the communists and the nationalists. So, so in the first, Tony Sage looks at, at this character, Henrikus Sneefliet, a uh, Dutch Comintern agent who was present at the creation, as it were, of the party. Uh, he wasn't on the boat, but he was in you know, the original sort of pre raid meeting in the uh, international uh, section uh, in Shanghai. Um, he was also instrumental in persuading the nascent revolutionaries uh, of the need to collaborate with the Guomindang to become a block within the Nationalist Party. The second chapter uh, is an essay by Hans van Ven, who's one of the editors, about Wang Mi, who was very urbane, very erudite, uh, very westernized. He was one of the 28 Bolsheviks. He pushed a solidly sort of pro-common turn line, came to clash with Mao. And it seems to me that, that something in common here is that both of these two represent a kind of cosmopolitan tradition in the CCP, and not just in those chapters either. We see other characters who bring this later on, I mean, 60, 60 years later in the chapter in the 1980s, uh, for example, uh, the character of Zhao Ziang. Uh, can, can we talk about this, this cosmopolitan tradition and whether that was a theme that you deliberately wanted to hit uh, maybe in response to? I think that's something probably a lot of people don't know about the history of the party.
4: Mm-hmm. we came, we started with a, a kind of an inductive approach being the three of us historians and just said let's you know we're going to have the two narratives it's going to be the the party is wonderful coming out of beijing and the party is awful coming out of washington and we wanted to strike some kind of path in between as historians and so we said just look each and let each author tell it like they see it uh, in their time period this was not Liz's chapter, but Liz has dealt with 1920s uh, yeah, yeah. cosmopolitanism and commitments from An Yuan. And so uh, how did that theme strike you, Liz?
0: Yeah, I recall, I, I think, Tim, that at first you had suggested that I might work on the 1920s and mm-hmm. do a uh, possible chapter on Li Lisan. I had kind of portrayed as the hero of Anyuan in my book on yeah, the Communists at the coal mine, and uh, I think I replied to you that I really had said everything I had to say about Lili San, (laughs) and uh, since I was currently working on the 1960s and work teams, I wondered if switching to a different character might make sense. But, you know, my guess is that the cosmopolitanism of it is a reflection of the fact that you really did give us pretty free reign to choose the characters whom we found attractive and not surprisingly most of us are probably most attracted to some of the more cosmopolitan figures in the history of the Chinese Communist Party, some of whom are not Chinese. So several of these characters in the chapters, um, uh, Dutchman and um, also Guzman, I I think makes an appearance later (laughs) on. And um, so we have um, people from Latin America, people from Europe, and then Chinese who themselves have spent a lot of time abroad and speak foreign languages, who I think to us as foreigners studying the Chinese Communist Party are particularly interesting characters um, to think about how they responded to the opportunities and also the problems that were presented by the Communist Party in each of these decades.
2: Mm-hmm. Well put. Yeah. So they may not be perfectly representative, but they certainly do represent a facet of the history of the party that too often, I think, goes ignored. The big question that I'm always asked, and I feel like I'm constantly wrestling with, and I know it's not an easy one, is the party better understood today more in terms of its continuities or its changes? I mean, there are those who see the party in its current incarnation as very much, you know, the same party that existed under Mao. They emphasize its Leninist form, its authoritarian inflexibility. On the other hand, there are plenty of people now who would emphasize instead the big ruptures, its completely different composition, you know, before and after Deng, and its its ideological flexibility, uh, and its flexibility as a source of its resilience. Uh, I'm often torn, I think, but that it, it's kind of a litmus test. Those people who do fall on one side and and fall on the other, you can sort of see an awful lot about how they they approach China. I I mean, I know that you'll all want to say both in answer to this, but let me ask specifically Liz first.
0: I mean, of course, I do have to say both because the the party could not possibly have survived without... reinventing itself at various junctures. And, you know, we can look at a number of those key watersheds of change and uh one that i think is particularly important is jang slimian's three represents that everyone used to laugh at in the 1990s yes. but yeah. is really yes. Ex- yes i thought i was the only one
3: my god yes. I, I have a big question all about three that's um, exactly my thing Yeah, <laughs> yes yeah. i
2: mean that's exactly um, how um, i couched it too it's just how it's <laughs> such an object of scorn and ridicule at the time but,
0: yeah you know everybody but, yeah, called yeah, him absolutely. a clown and and but um, you know, it's profoundly important to say that people who are capitalists can actually be invited into a communist party. And um, so it provided, you know, it was very heretical, but it also it suggested that this party was going to be the representative of advanced forces in society, both economically and also scientifically um, and intellectually. And I think that that has been profoundly important. So there are these, you know, extremely important changes, um, that have helped to, um, reinvent and rejuvenate the party. And yet overall, I would, um, see it more in terms of continuity and particularly under the current, um, general secretary because I think that, Xi Jinping himself really does look to the history of the Chinese Communist Party for his inspiration. And, you know, he often quotes Mao and refers to Mao and frequently is likened to Mao Um, but as um, I and I'm sure a number of others have have suggested he also um, looks a lot like people um, whom Mao eventually broke with and you know most obviously Liu Shaoqi who like Xi Jinping was a kind of control freak and who wanted the Communist Party to be in charge of everything, and was, you know, quite willing to mobilize masses uh, for support of the party, but did not want that mobilization to get out of hand. That's very different, obviously, from a Chairman Mao, who had the confidence to think that if things got out of hand, he would be able to bring them back into the kind of order that suited him best and repeatedly showed that that was the case. But I don't think either Liu Shaoqi or um, Xi Jinping has that kind of confidence. And um, in my view, a lot of what she has done in the anti-corruption campaign, is very reminiscent of what Liu Shaoqi did in the Socialist Education Movement, the Four Cleans leading up to the Cultural Revolution, which was also very much an anti-corruption campaign, an effort to reimpose the control of the party over all aspects of society and um, and also, Liu Shaoqi tried to develop a kind of cult of personality of his own um uh in that period just as Xi Jinping is developing his own cult of personality today and so I I really f- from my point of view at least without understanding that history it's very difficult to understand where the party currently is coming from because I think the party is deeply conscious of that history it's it's a long history now uh, of a century and obviously a very eventful history so there's a lot to pick and choose from it's not as though it by any means is deterministic. It rather opens doors and and opportunities and so forth. But it also sets limits uh, to imagination when you have general party secretaries um, who are less inventive. And um, so I I see the continuity as being central, but not determinative. Yeah.
4: One of the themes that comes up in the book, and uh, Klaus loves to hammer on this one, is that it's a learning party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, look at the changes. Part of the way it could survive organizationally is it wasn't afraid to go back on itself. And, and you know, flip-flop was not a problem for them. Of course, when you run the propaganda system, no one's going to quiz you on your flip-flop. So it goes from an urban party to a rural party, right? To, to a, a, a rural party to a, a Soviet-style administration. Then it's going to go anti-Soviet. And then... And, you know, then it's going to bring in a bunch of market reforms and all under the Communist Party. And I'm with Liz. I've, I've been saying for a while, too, that put away your Mao Zedong quotations and get out. I have a little red volume of, <laughs> of Liu Xiaoqi on Dan Lun Dang, Lundang. Right? And it includes the long version of on self cultivation of the Communist Party member. And uh, it's uh, very much that. The second thing that Liz said I think is key is the, and this brings us back to the Catholic Church, the Sangha Dai Biao, the uh, three represents that's like Vatican II. Vatican II, right. you, you know, it <laughs> is it it is explaining to the faithful why why something as awkward as you know uh, having capitalists in the Communist Party is theologically okay. And finally, I, the way I see Xi Jinping, as I call it, Xi Jinping's Counter Reformation, again, uh-huh. thinking Council of Trent, as
2: opposed to the Edict of Nantes. The
4: the uh, um, and, and what's he going against? He's going against the reformation, the reformed Leninism of Zhao Ziyan. And then going into the Jiang Zemin, but we've got someone here who can talk about Jiang Zemin.
2: We do, indeed. Actually, we flicked at two later chapters where we will be talking about uh, Jiang Zemin, uh, Jeremy's excellent chapter. And Liz also uh, flicked at the four cleans. So we've got three represents and four cleans, and we'll get to both in a little bit. you know, something that's always struck me about the party across its century of history is this, this oscillation between periods of, you know, admirable ideological flexibility where it's really able to set aside dogma in deference to kind of, you know, practical reality and these other periods of retrenchment or ideological rigidity. Um, and explanations, though, I mean, and this is something we, we very much see. Uh, they, they boil down often, too often, I think, and by my, for my taste, to the individuals at the top of the party organization. You know, Mao was dogmatic, Deng was a pragmatist, what with the black cat, the white cat, the feeling, the stones, and blah, blah. And then Xi Jinping, where, you know, we're suddenly back to rigidity. I, I feel like, People looking at China today are more apt than ever to find explanation in personalities of leaders, but I'm, you know, kind of less of a Carlylean and more of a Tolstoyan when it comes to this, and so this has never been very satisfying to me. Is there a better way to think about these oscillations, Tim? You talked about how Hans has talked about it. it's a learning party, mm-hmm. and that that I think that does take us away from that individual. Think, um, can can we expand on this? So what are your your thoughts on? You know the individual versus historical forces and the shaping of flexibility.
4: Well, I think one way to think about it is is the is the tension between the supreme leader and collective leadership in the party, and that's definitely a theme that goes throughout the history. And uh, I I've long seen that even Mao Zedong coming as the uh, supreme leader. You know, part of that was contingent. Of course, the Communist Party in China is based on the on the Stalinist model. Uh, Bolshevik party, but you know, they didn't make Chairman Mao, Chairman Mao, until uh, 43, 44, when uh, they were up against Chiang Kai-shek being the, the, uh, the, the Lingxiu, the Fuhrer, right? And his book on uh, China's destiny. So the Communist Party had to have an Elvis Presley figure out front to get everybody <laughs> dancing. Right. And, uh, you know, I think that that's an agreement that has come amongst the party elite now Uh, 50, 60 years later in a completely different situation, why is Xi Jinping able to do what he's doing? Is it because he's so brilliant? Is it because he's so charismatic? Or is it because the leadership has decided that that the Chinese political culture needs a figure like that?
2: Right. Right. During the who and when period, of course, I think you know. I think we would have looked at at the collective nature of the leadership and decided, well, that's a feature, that's not a bug. This was mm-hmm. also a deliberate choice. Mm-hmm. This wasn't just a function of who being weak. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something that they believed that they needed at at that time, but it allowed a lot of things to happen that I think a lot of people were. Well, but the other
4: way it. to look at it too is you know we kind of look back at the uh, the Jiang Zemin's extended reign, the post reign in the two thousands in the naughty knots. But many of the repressive policies that are in line today came with the uh, Youth League group. Around who and when started they were started, and they've only just been perfected. Yeah, yeah. The stable uh, maintenance regime Um,
0: really was put in place in two thousand eight.
2: Yeah, that's when we all started talking about harmonization, and
0: partly the lead up to the Olympics, partly the um, unrest in Xinjiang and Tibet. And, um, and clearly that uh, there was uh, great concern on making sure that the party did not lose control at that moment, and also obviously the financial crisis, international um, financial crisis. So all of those things made the party very nervous, and that certainly predated uh, Xi Jinping's term.
2: And Jeremy I want to bring you in here cuz I mean I think your chapter I was very pleased to see recalls the the that decade that we were just talking about the decade of the, the naughty oddies, as you call it uh very much in the way that I do I mean it was in a, a sense our decade right <laughs> I mean right at the heart of the years that we spent living in in China you from 95 to 2015 me from 96 to 2016 so I mean it was right in the middle of it right I mean I feel like the early years of our show too Jeremy were kind of we you know we were taping in that that the really awful apartment in Beijing, um, they kind of documented or maybe chronicled that whole shift away from the spirit of the, those earlier years uh, when, you know, we, we've kind of jokingly, and I see you even referred to it in your book, talk about a kind of golden age of liberalism. In the yeah, years of, uh,
3: yeah, I mean, I could, did I cite you as the source of that quote? Or, or did it come from me? I don't no, know. But uh,
2: we used to talk about it came from you originally, I think you were the first person we, to say we used
3: to talk about that a lot on the show. And I mean, indeed, our first show in April 2010 was about Google leaving China, which was kind of that was one of the signs. Of the end of, of that era because you know they'd come in 2006 yeah, and it was yeah. uh, there was this feeling that there were possibilities of openness which yeah, closed uh, and that did predate she.
2: I gotta ask though, Tim, the choice of Jeremy was an interesting <laughs> one. I mean, I would have gone with him because I think that if you were to look at the newspapers of that era, he was probably the most quoted person, he was the guy with his finger on the pulse of. Of you know what was happening on the, in this new you know this new public sphere of the internet, like mm-hmm. you had a question about what people are saying online, you got to ask Jeremy Goldcorn. I mean, Dan Wei was really doing that. I mean, you were, you know, you had the the your, your, the, the sense of the the zeitgeist then. So I thought it was a really good choice. Well, well Kaiser, it was an obvious choice.
4: Here was Jeremy Goldcorn was the sneevliet of, of the 21st century, <laughs> and, 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 but he was the messenger of historical nihilism
0: Yes, uh, and,
2: and, 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 he, you know
4: he was just bringing in the most advanced stuff from the West.
2: Right, right. He was the flies that got through the, I don't the, know the, if the I like the way this. He is was close. also, yeah. He was the guy who's picking <laughs> picking quarrels and causing trouble. But it <laughs> was all the, about him.
4: But in, in real answers, is too, we wanted to break out of all academics, and you know that there's there's. Very valuable knowledge about China that comes from people who do other than write dissertations and sit in a library, and so it, it was your active work, particularly in that decade, and living there and the lived experience that you had in your engagement
2: uh, that was very attractive uh, for us. Yeah, a, I thought it was a pretty inspired choice. I, say. I mean, not just because he's my buddy. And then, and then we went with uh, you know Yang Guo being you know. Oh, that was great too. Yeah, yeah and his choice like, and, and what he did. He comes yes. back with. Guo Meimei. Mei Mei, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was fantastic. Uh, uh, we, we'll talk about who Guo was. I mean, actually, you know, it, this is sort of a tradition on our show is whenever we have some sort of pop culture figure that shows up, uh, the first thing out of my mouth is, Jeremy, would you like to do a quick explainer? Before we ask you to talk about Guo Meimei and uh, Yang Guobin's piece, Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about the three represents. I mean, and then and, and your choice of Jiang as the... The, the person to focus on, that was that was interesting. Uh, I mean, it, it wasn't some internet entrepreneur, it wasn't some emerging public intellectual, it wasn't somebody symbolic like Sun Gong you know, uh, well, they, they all would have been legitimate choices. Like you could have gone with Jack Ma, right? You could have gone with, you know, Fang um, Zhuozi or something like that.
3: Yeah, right? I suppose so. I mean, I think part of it was that, uh, as soon as, uh, I think it was originally, Tim and Hans had re- re- contacted me about the book, uh, Jiang Zemin was the first person I thought of because I am a Toad fan. I am somebody who's slightly obsessed <laughs> with Jong Zemin. It adds new meaning to Toad. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it also seemed to me that he, he, he was sort of hanging, sort of wraith like, over much of my experiences of China. That, uh, you know, he was this, uh, you know, sometimes visible, but usually invisible presence over the government, but over. You know, even the things that I I was doing in China, uh, the way people were interacting. You know, the fact that there was this crazy sort of capitalist boom uh, that you know he was partly or perhaps largely responsible for with the Three Represents, um, and that he also captured the imagination of you know a, a later generation of of Chinese younger Chinese internet users who weren't really you know observing politics when he was actually in power, but he's become this sort of almost cult figure. It just seemed that he 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 symbolized a bunch of different things about the changes in China, and particularly the party's role
2: in it. Jeremy, the three represents when when it was, you know, rolled out initially was something that I think both of us recognized as significant, but at a time when most of our friends, foreigners and Chinese alike, were really dismissive of it. I mean, okay, Let's face it, it was inelegantly packaged, yeah? I mean, looking back, though, I mean, do you feel as confident as we were back then of the, how significant and enduring a kind of theoretical contribution this was that was made by Comrade Jiang Zemin, the party core? Uh, <laughs> do you feel? You know, f-
3: I, I don't think I'm the right person to ask about the the value of the theoretical contribution. I think you should ask a proper historian about that. But I think in terms of shaping the, the okay, times, yes, I think it was very important. I mean the the company you used to work for your your old boss Robin Lee literally used to att- well, and maybe still does attend uh, meetings of the uh, consultative conference right yeah, he does I mean that's extraordinary uh, you yeah. know in, in in the early nineteen nineties when people thought maybe you know before Dung died people thought things were going to go really backwards and 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 uh, a lot of this experimentation with capitalism would end who could have imagined you know billionaire business people in in, I mean, I know
2: it's a weak and impotent part of the government, but still. So yeah, I, I don't. And he's, it's not the party either. No, so. but but yeah, no. But I, I take your point absolutely. I mean, my, my, the the what really changed my mind on it, and I'm just to tell a quick story that I may have told before. This was that um, I was talking about it with my father, who also lived in China, and he he was the first person to truly alert me to the significance because I had said something sort of sneering about it, and he said. Uh, I recently visited uh, a, a company in Zhongguancun that employs 12,000 people. Only three were party members. One was a driver and one was a chef. Uh, and uh, the, you know, the other person was just some, some middling person. And, and he said that uh, anyone uh, who looked at that situation uh, would, would have recognized that that was untenable for the party. That if you have, like, a, a, you know, a, a an electronics Concern a, a very very lucrative one, and it had you know such low level of party representation that that was not going to to, to work. So that that sort of alerted me to it, and then I started watching this as this was happening. Um, let's. I, I wanted to ask you about uh, Yang Wobin's chapter and about this this character Guame. Guame. Uh, b- by the way, no relation. Um, you say what? What did Guobin <laughs> see? In her story I said uh, in her story that made her such a good vehicle for a discussion of the decade of the 2010s in China Jeremy, maybe could you give a quick um, potted kind of history of this this scandal scandal ridden woman
3: well I, I I mean I can't speak for Gorbin, but I, th- I do think it was a genius selection but from um so she was a young uh, woman who had a maserati and a lot of very expensive clothes and accessories and used to uh, show them off on Weibo, on the you know China's Twitter, the premier social network of the time, and uh, this was very common behavior. Uh, there was a word for it, shai um, fu," you know, to show off your wealth. But she uh, made the mistake of uh, uh, having in her bio that she was uh, working for the uh, China Red uh, Commercial Red Cross Society. I think it was called. I, I may have got those wording exactly.
4: Close, but not Have exactly.
3: You got name, name at the but
2: enough to close enough. It had it had right a, a association. It had with the
3: a you know apparent association with the Red Cross, um, yeah. and uh, this was before Xi Jinping kind of destroyed the internet as we knew it, and there was still a lot very very lively debate on social media, and you know the uh, Weibo was very active, and there was this bulletin board website forum called Tianya where there'd be a lot of sort of slightly investigative work uh, by yeah. groups of internet users. And uh, somebody uh, pointed out that this woman who appeared to be being paid by the Red Cross was buying Maseratis with, you know, the money or some money. And it became a, a, a controversy on the Chinese internet. You know, she was flesh, uh, human flesh uh, search engine human searched. searched. Uh, yeah. People dug her up. Uh, and uh, the Red Cross actually lost a lot of money uh, the Chinese Red Cross because people stopped donating uh,
2: uh, yes s- blood supplies were very low all yeah, stuff, yeah everybody had terrible.
3: to apologize and um, uh, then she was eventually uh, in in twenty fifteen a few years later she was done for on gambling charges and then sentenced. uh, She did five years in jail um, and had to do. She was one of the victims of the televised confession campaign on CCTV that became a hallmark of the early years of the Xi Jinping uh, administration.
2: That's right.
1: That's right. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana.
2: It doesn't get any better than this.
1: Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes.
2: There really is no place like home.
1: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
4: But she was a perfect poster child for a theme that we were struck by in the 2010s, which is how far away the party was. And just like your father's story, uh, you know, it, it sets the grounds for what Xi Jinping is on about, which is this is this is out of hand. We have to get back and, and control
2: and the spirit of Liu Xiaoqi, as Liz said, um, <laughs> has risen again. We must once again grasp the essential. Tim, I want to turn to you and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, intellectuals and their relationship with Mm. the state, with the party specifically. Uh, Mm. The chapter on Wang Yuanhua and your own chapter on Wang Wang, Wang Shui, for example. Uh, You've Mm. built a career on looking at the state and intellectual in China, uh, which I have long held to be. One of, if not the most important key to understanding sort of how politics and how history move in China. Uh, this collection isn't in intellectual history, but it does zoom in on uh, some important inflection points in the relationship between party and intellectual, uh, again, including your chapter on Wang Shui and the the rectification campaign. Uh, Can you quickly maybe identify across this 100 years what, for you, some of the less obvious inflection points are? I mean, we all understand uh, some of these moments. We all understand, you know, the Hundred Flowers and then the anti-rightist campaign. We all understand these things. But what are some of the other some more subtle moments when the relationship between party and and the Jishifun's kind of started to shift?
4: Well, it's, you know, you're right, it's been a career for me and I've I, it, it's endlessly fascinating. And one of the key things is, of course, that um, most of the party leaders were intellectuals and yet they were uh, criticizing intellectuals. And so Suzanne Weigl and Schwarzig years ago said, what we think of as struggles between the party and intellectuals is, are just uh, struggles amongst intellectuals. So the key thing here is Wang Shui Wei in the 1940s. He goes down as a critic of Mao. But what he was doing, he was very much in the in the group of Wang Ming, uh, not as a direct follower, but in the same worldview of this cosmopolitan communism uh, that that they, they said this is part of a global revolution and it, it's going to be modern. And so national forms is crazy. You've got to have Western forms because they're the most modern. And so the, it was the the deal that was hammered out there was is you do it Mao, Mao's way or no way. Right. And yet, you know, plenty of people, you know, I also worked on Deng Tuo, who was the first editor of People's Daily. You know, they found a rich life uh, serving the party and being uh, you know, Chinese intellectuals and collecting art and, and doing these things in the 1950s. And then and then it, it blows up. I find the most poignant work is actually the 80s with mm-hmm, the Meng mm-hmm. um, well, Roshui, um, who we did not profile, yeah. uh, who, you know, was a leftist in the Cultural Revolution, uh, you know, took down Yang Xianzhan and others, uh, The uh, um, and, you know, had his ho-hui, you know, he had his regrets. And even Zhou Yang, the the, the Merle Goldman's Bette Noir, the, the, the literary czar, sure. you know, uh, this, they're trying to rethink what they're doing. And so the book that captures this relationship so well is Miklos Harazzi, The Velvet Prison, artists under state socialism, which was translated in 1989. And we all learned about it from Jeremy Barmé uh, when he wrote about the Velvet Prison in China. And that is the attractiveness of the state socialist system for intellectuals to be the teachers of the masses. The attractiveness of Stalinism and socialism for intellectuals is that you get to be the teacher of the nation. Right. And look at Liu Binyan. Liu Binyan, what did he say? We have to speak for the people. And that's why the chapter by Xu Jilin uh, on um, Wang Yuanhua is so powerful, because Wang Yuanhua was like Wang Roshui, a, a, a loyal lefty, super smart, super cosmopolitan. He loves nineteenth century European literature. He served the party, and by the '90s, he's he's an apostate.
2: Yeah, but he's still an apostate in a within a kind of scripted way. Um, yes. And and the, the kind of elliptical way that he uses, he deploys language and all that, and which is it just it comes across in Xu lean's piece on him. I thought it was a really good study of the way that the state and, and the intellectual typically interact. And this isn't just mm-hmm. within the the history of the party, the hundred years of the party's history. I think this goes quite far back, where you could describe a kind sure of lo- loyal opposition, where uh, you know, remonstrance against the state takes on this kind of allegorical. Uh, very highly symbolic form, it's quite subtle. It requires actually a pretty good steeping in the culture to be able to read the, this kind of, you know, kind of, you know, arcane semiotic language sometimes. But Liz, I mean, maybe we can we can talk about this because, you know, this is something, this is your your playground as well. Throughout the whole history of the PRC, there have been lots of examples of this. I mean, the obvious ones like Hai Reh dismissed from office, this, you know, oblique defense of, of Peng Lohua after he criticized Mao. Um, the invocations of May 4th during the 89 protests all over the place. Do you think that this very culturally specific political idiom the, the the requirements of, of that understanding of, of the symbolic language that's deployed by intellectuals, this makes Chinese politics, I think, particularly difficult to understand, really inaccessible to most people. And how, as a professor of politics and history, do you try to give your students a sense of this?
0: Right. I mean, we're very lucky these days in that so many of our students are actually Um, from China and have native fluency in Chinese and can help us out in this respect. Um, I think, um, you know, the question of political allegory is one that we find in lots of um, authoritarian regimes, especially those that have long histories in which people then write in kind of arcane code that uh, is accessible only to those who are really well versed in the culture in which that particular political regime is set So I don't think that's uniquely Chinese I think we, we see it um, in, in different cultures but in order to understand it in any particular culture you have to be able to go back to the historical analogues that are being being referenced and I think students in fact find that quite, fascinating. But, you know, I would say as as you and Tim were talking, it occurred to me that one of the first questions you asked, Kaiser, was about continuity and change in the Chinese Communist Party. Mm -hmm. And Tim, of course, quite correctly, reminded us that the party from the beginning was a party of intellectuals. These were intellectuals who gathered who were deeply concerned about the fate of their country, but they included some of China's leading intellectuals, uh, the head of the Peking University Library, the dean of Peking University. Even Mao, who certainly could not have been considered a leading intellectual, nevertheless had had an excellent education and became known for his calligraphy and his poetry and his ability to reference these kinds of things. I don't think we could say the same about Xi Jinping. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. we're talking about a general secretary today who due in large part to the Cultural Revolution, is not terribly well educated in his own culture. People have laughed at his mistakes when he's reading somewhat obscure Chinese characters uh, in a speech and reading them out incorrectly. You know, he's helped by people like Wang Huning and others um, who guide him uh, on his ideological journey. But I think this is one real difference of the Chinese Communist Party today, that it's not led by someone who really is an intellectual. That may have been true for Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao as well. At least they were well-trained as engineers. Um, But uh, if we go back earlier to Deng Xiaoping, Mao Zedong, we are talking about people who enjoyed exchanging ideas and who were searching um, both in their own history and in Deng's case, being trained abroad, spending time in France, and that was true for many of the other early party leaders as well, that they were looking not only into their own history, but they were looking around the world for various kinds of ideas and analogies. So I I do think that's something that does not bode well, really, for the future of the Chinese Communist Party to the extent that now it has more of the sort of apparatchiks that brought down the Soviet Union, people who really did not come across as intellectuals, people who understood how parties were supposed to be run and were very concerned about controlling them, but had difficulty with soft power, if you will, difficulty with referencing the more subtle messages in their culture, let alone reaching out and. a copy. A cosmopolitan way to be able to incorporate foreign ideas within it. And so I think that is one of the worrying concerns for those who would like to see the Chinese Communist Party survive well into the future. In my view, it looks today with somebody like Xi Jinping in charge a lot more like the Soviet Union's party, and I think it's maybe a little less difficult uh, to interpret it than it was in Mao's day um, when you had to um, pull out your Twenty-four uh, dynastic histories and look for those references <laughs> in his poems and so forth. You don't really have to do that with um, Xi Jinping's um, speeches. No, you don't. And um, so I think it, in some ways, it's it's quite ironic because Xi Jinping, of course is constantly referencing Chinese history, the 5,000 glorious years of Chinese tradition and how the Chinese Communist Party is the sort of seamless continuation of that glorious history. But I think the reality is that his own familiarity with that history is not particularly deep. And um, and that that's perhaps a concern um, for the future of, of the party.
2: Oh, you have to be careful what you wish for. I mean, I'm not sure that we want Wahuning or or Juan or anyone else succeeding him. The the actual uh, yeah, intellectuals, yeah. In the
4: they're they're intellectuals, but they're I'm not sure they'd be right, my right,
2: best right, friends. Right, right.
0: I mean, the top leader of the party has never been someone who was chosen for his intellectual prowess. It's always been somebody you know who could win the street fights. I think there's no question about that. Yeah. But having that person be able, nevertheless, um, to um, present things in a way that were culturally consonant, I think has been very powerful and very important to the success of the Chinese Communist Party. And if it just has the street fighter, but that street fighter is really not able to put his fingers on kind of the pulse of the Chinese cultural tradition. I think that's a real vulnerability for the party's resilience.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, I suppose, do we need, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know how the intelligentsia would respond to one of its own Right now, either. i, I it's, it's hard for me to guess. I, I can imagine them maybe even being more offended uh, if he did have those sort of pretensions. And maybe we do need the street fighter, the guy who has some abilities in retail politics for the time that we're in. But, hey, mm-hmm.
1: I but want you, to stay are, on this topic of
2: intellectuals with you, Tim, um, one of my gripes— one of my big gripes, and Jeremy's heard this a million times, and, and this is really one of the reasons I admire your work and the work of people like David Ownby, um, mm. is that especially since eighty nine, the China watching world has tended to focus on critical intellectuals, not the party intellectuals that you've mm. you've made you sort of mm. your your bread and butter. Uh, they focus mm. on the dissidents, almost to the exclusion of the, the more establishment intellectuals, whether party or mm. or not party. Okay. They're far less sexy than than the the dissidents or the critical intellectuals. Um, less sexy, more stoogy. <laughs> yeah, but and you know, but but you could make the, the the case that they're also or even maybe even more critical to understanding China as it is, right? Your chapter, you know, you went with Wang Shui, uh who as a victim of the rectification campaign is more in the mold of critical intellectuals. Mm. Who usually get the attention. Um, Get, can you talk about your decision to focus on him and that that kind of deviated from your typical approach which is like you're going to bring out this boring guy who and you're going to show us how to, actually if we understand how he thinks we get a better kind of we draw a better bead on China's reality
4: I know when I pitched my uh my uh, dissertation topic to Phil Kuhn. I said, "Well, Deng Tuo, you know, he's a dead communist <laughs> propagandist. You know, what, what's not to like?" but you know, we, we won him over in the end. Yeah. Uh, Wang Shui is, 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 you know, from World Goldman on down, has been a a a a, a poster child, a figure for dissident intellectuals. Right. And it, it was my old teacher at ANU, uh, Pierre Rickman, Simon lays. Who put me onto him, and I have to say for dr rickman 's um, uh, uh, benefit uh, i didn 't come up with the answer he expected me to come up with because he he considered Wang shui a a, a, a paragon of morality who showed <laughs> the venality of Mao and the party, and what I discovered was yeah, he did because he thought their communism wasn 't communist enough, right, right, right. so you know he was he, so I still consider him part of my establishment intellectuals and and he was working within this language. Um he was just brash out of Shanghai and didn't realize that he was on the home turf of the of the biggest street fighter, as Liz put it, and of course went toe to toe and and lost on it.
2: Yeah, yeah. But
4: all the way down. Um I'm I am with you. I, I think if we want to understand um the ideology as it rolls around China's uh, political sphere, um you need to hear more voices. And you mentioned David Owenby, and I was about to do a shout out for uh, reading The China Dream. Yeah, if fantastic. you want to find out thousands of pages now in English of a diversity of Chinese public intellectuals, New Left, Liberal, New Confucian, and others, thats it's a great source for people. And there's no excuse uh, for saying, oh, I can't read Chinese fast enough. Uh, there, there's plenty of voices there. So Huang Gang and the lovely Zhang Shigong are represented well. <laughs> Um, along with a, a, another range of voices,
2: Jeremy, do you remember when what what Jude, how Jude Blanchett put it? He said, "Who is the David Brooks of China?" <laughs> that was that was his. I thought that was so brilliant. It was like we kind of need to understand who the most sort of bland, um, kind of centrist, and and you know. Eh, Brooks isn't stupid, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I want to, I want to move back to Liz and, and get her to talk about her fascinating chapter about Wang Wangmei. Yeah. Uh, Wang Wangmei was the wife of Lu Shaqi. He was like his fourth or fifth wife, I think. Uh, I guess I didn't realize that guy had went through so many wives. But, uh, you know, for those of you who aren't up on your party history, you know, Liu Shaoqi, we've talked about him a little bit before. Uh, He was, you know, by the way, uh, I I cut my teeth on in Chinese politics at UC Berkeley with Lowell Dittmer, who wrote the book on Liu Shaoqi. He was a very familiar character to me growing up. so, you know, he was made, of course, the first major target in the Cultural Revolution, and he died in prison. Uh, Wang Mei herself was also a victim of Red Guard violence. She actually endured one of the most humiliating and, and largest public struggle sessions. Um, and then, you know, with, there's famous pictures of it, and they're included in the book. You should see this. It's really really distressing to see that that the necklace of ping pong balls and the big straw hat. Um, but the, the central irony in your chapter was about how Wang Wang actually helped really set the stage for it, really maybe uncorked the bottle of the cultural revolution. Can you tell us about that, Liz, about the peach garden experience, uh, which was part of this four cleans campaign that her husband had launched. Uh, she went incognito to a Hebei village to try to uproot official malfeasance and ended up, you know, letting out the the, the demon.
0: That's right. So Wang Guangmei had had some experience uh, uh, in mobilizing um, society before the socialist education movement. During land reform, she was one of these intellectuals who had gone to Yan'an and had um, then been assigned to go down as uh, a communist cadre to help um, classify land and so forth. And she actually served during land reform in an area that became um, very well known for its violence and bloodshed. So she had already learned a thing or two about mass mobilization. Um, but she apparently was quite surprised in um, the mid-1960s, when her husband, Liu Shaqi, insisted that she should go down to some village in China. He was not specific where it should be um, to help carry out the so-called Four Cleans, the slitching movement that was supposed to clean up uh, cadre infractions uh, at the grassroots. And Wang Guangmei had, as I said, had this experience during land reform, but she had also been quite chastened during land reform at her inability to understand the local dialect of the peasants in Shanxi province, where she had been in land reform. And later on, right after the Great Leap Forward, she had accompanied her husband down to his native, Hunan province. And she was even more distressed there that she could barely understand a thing that the peasants were saying in Hunan, and they could not understand her either. And so when it came to the Four Cleans, she chose a village in North China where she would actually be able to communicate with the locals. And she went down incognito with a pseudonym Um, claiming to be a security cadre from Hebei province. And she tells us in her memoirs that because television was quite rare in China at that time, um, most people really had no idea who she was um, for at least the initial stage of her time in this village. But like many intellectuals, she was extremely critical of the grassroots cadres. You know, she herself had had very little in the way of governance responsibilities, and when she saw these local cadres who occasionally cursed the peasants, or maybe not so occasionally, and uh, sometimes beat the peasants and sometimes took from them and so forth, she reacted to it with tremendous self-righteousness. And this, as the um, party historian at East China Normal University, um, Wang Haiguang, has written about this. The fact that when intellectuals are sent down to the Chinese countryside, they often, in his view, really overreact um, to the abuses of local power that they witness because they're very unfamiliar with the way in which village politics actually work in China. So Wang Guangmei was quite upset at what she saw, and she was highly critical of the local cadres there in Peach Garden for their infractions, their corruption, and so forth. And she then wrote up her experiences in something that became known as Peach Garden experience in which she talks about the steps that one goes through in mass mobilization and how important it is to fire up the masses against various abuses that are oppressing them. And essentially what she did in that document was to take the tactics that had been used in land reform against landlords and now apply them um, to cadres, to members of the Communist Party themselves who were accused of being um, corrupt. She was actually a scientist. Um, She was the uh, first woman, I believe, in China to receive an advanced degree in atomic physics. And she actually was accepted to PhD programs at both Stanford and the University of Chicago, and almost came to the US for a PhD, but instead was persuaded to become a member of the communist movement and to go up to Yan'an in um, the wartime period. So Wang Guangmei, in Peach Garden Experience, takes her scientist sensibility and analyzes mass mobilization. And it really has a lot of fascinating insights. I mean, she says, actually, social science is so much tougher than the natural sciences. In the natural sciences, (laughs) you have thermometers Mm -hmm. that measure um, (laughs) people's temperatures, and you can tell whether they're sick or, or not, whether they need medicine. In the social sciences, you have to just sort of intuit the temperature of uh, the political climate, but figuring out what it is and controlling it so that you whip the masses up into a frenzy, but can also um, settle them down again when necessary is essential. So um, she wrote this document, which her husband edited. And then he sent her basically on a speaking tour all around China where she would lecture six to eight hours at a time about her peach garden experience and the importance of um, using coercive means if necessary against um, local cadres in order to deal with the corruption that had crept into the party. So the great irony here then of course is that many of these techniques are then used against her and her husband just a few years later in the cultural revolution.
2: It's Robespierre on the guillotine. Right.
0: But it, it's a story I think filled with with so much irony because you know she Wang Guangmei came from an elite family in um Beijing and Tianjin areas both sides of her family were Quite well off and had a great deal of education. And she gave all that up um, to go and join the communists in Yan'an. Um, and then, you know, there's this irony of her then writing the book on how to attack people, which is used against her and her husband in very brutal fashion in the Cultural Revolution. And then again, after the Cultural Revolution, she reinvents herself as a major philanthropist. She takes the furnishings, antiques, and so on that were returned to her, her family heirlooms that were returned to her after the Cultural Revolution. She takes them, sells them, and uses that money to help out indigent women and develops a very successful NGO in the post mao period. So, it's, and so she comes back sort of full circle to um, this aristocratic
2: elite. When she writes her memoirs toward the end of her life, th- does she have a sense of the irony? Does she have a sense uh, that what she had been pushing in those lectures, in Peach Garden Experience, was just one step away from Red Guardism, right?
0: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't really get any sense of that irony. She's obviously a super smart person, and she is somewhat reflective on things, but she, I think, does not see this as a great irony. I think she sees it as kind of the natural course of a revolution. There's a certain resignation to it. Not as much bitterness as I might have anticipated in reading the memoirs and her interviews with various people. I think there's a sort of sense of resignation and there is this sense of inevitability that underlies her view of history and of the world. I mean, Tim was saying that as a historian, his view is a view of contingency. And that's certainly a view I share that, you know, at every step in the road, we can make these different choices and, um, and then the choices come back to haunt us in all kinds of unexpected and ironic ways. But, but if you believe fervently in the inevitability of history, I don't think you have quite that same sense of irony. And, uh, and it, it doesn't seem to me to be there in her
4: right. writing.
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, communists are teleological thinkers by, by definition. Mm. So.
4: Kaiser, I want to turn to a movie star and the chapter on uh Yunshu, oh, yeah right because she was one of the chapters that um, um one of our one of the best i think and um she is an example of living with the party because and it's also the intellectuals that you and i share an interest in but she's a creative right uh, a cultural a, figure yeah a cultural figure and i think that uh, Zhang Jishun, uh who's a wonderful scholar uh, working out of shanghai and was the. Uh, well, quite openly, the party secretary of East uh, Eastern right. Normal University for years, very kaiming, very open-minded. Uh, he wrote a beautiful uh, chapter here about experiencing life with the party in the right. 1950s. And uh, a number we've been talking about people who were identified with the party in the party and leading parts of the party. And um, of course, there were you know the the other not part of the 60 million people then who were not in the party who had to live with it. And I think her. Experience is ups and downs and tragic, and yet she's still trying to find a ways work with the party. And I think it's one of the themes that you and I have seen with Chinese intellectuals is a desire to find a way to work with uh, the institution rather than oppose uh, the establishment. intellectuals, But doesn't mean they have no agency That's or right. no That's dignity. Right. They, they don't. You know, I, I often call it um, agency through exegesis. <sighs> so yes, you cite Mao, but you interpret it. And I bet there's plenty of citing of Xi Jinping that comes right around to what that intellectual was saying 10 years ago anyway.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, you know the, the, that chapter is fantastic, uh, really all about the vicissitudes of, of culture work during that really important formative decade. Uh, you know, there are so many others that I would love to be able to talk about. We haven't even really talked about Klaus's chapter on Zhao Ziang or about Julia Lovell's really, really fascinating one about Abimail Guzman and, and the Sedera Luminosa, The Shining Path. Um, my favorite story. Global. Holiday. I came back from from China in 89 after after uh, Tiananmen and went back to UC Berkeley. There's this place called Revolution Books. Liz, you remember that place? Revolution yeah, books yeah, in that, that, cha- that alley right by, between Channing and Durant. I've told the story on the show before, but it's just they so funny. They would come
0: by at the beginning of every semester to try to get me to um, order all my textbooks for classes through them. Oh,
2: Christ. But they were Maoists, right? So um, it was really funny. There was yes, that, yes. that guy. Dr. Uh, after Maoists. 89, I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: RMP, Revolutionary Marxist Party.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm. So um, they had these posters of, you know, Guzman and Sandero and Luminosa people and, and yeah. they were they were all, all about that. But they were trying to make the argument, I mean, you know, the that, that eighty nine actually represented a resurgence of, of enthusiasm for Mao. They had as their their proof of that a guy carrying a Mao poster in, in Tiananmen. And I could see just by the way that fellow was dressed and kind of funny expression on his face that it was ironic. But in any case, uh, so I, I I went I asked the guy so do you guys support the Khmer Rouge? He goes, "Hmm, hang on a sec. Barbara, do we support the Khmer Rouge? <laughs> was, uh, anyway, I love that. I, I, I don't that. There's also, uh, the, the, anyway, the, the fantastic uh, book. I'm really pleased uh, to to have been able to have you both on. One final question for reflection here before we, we go to uh, recommendations. The party claims dissent from the May 4th movement, and given that some of its founding figures were very much part of that movement, uh, it's not a groundless claim. Reading the book, um, the, the debates of the May 4th period are still being waged constantly throughout this, this book. I feel like there's some new sort of uh, recapitulation of the same themes in almost every chapter. It's not just, you know, Wang Yuanhua and many others. You could even argue that uh, today we're still seeing a lot of that being fought over. And, you know, part of that is that sort of, um, n- national versus cosmopolitan, uh, uh exigencies. Um, I, I wonder like, you know, the, the founding intellectuals who are very much of May 4th, you know, uh, Li Da Zhao and Chen Lu they both died long before the power party achieved power. Li died in, in the white terror in 27. Uh, and then, you know, Chen dies in 42. But, um, how would these cosmopolitans of the early days, uh, and and let's let's throw in you know uh, Snefliet and Adolf Joffe and Borodin and all these other comrades. What would they make of the party today? What would they do? Would they see it as having achieved a kind of cosmopolitanism, or would they see it as this is this is the outgrowth of a purely sort of national revolution?
4: Well. It- that you, you there's an argument running through the uh, Western Sinology community about Mao, the you know Nick Knight versus Stuart uh-huh, Schramm. Uh-huh. was was Mao more, more a, a Chinese and a nationalist or more cosmopolitan and a and a and a, and a Marxist? Um, I'd have to say that the the May Fourth, I would guess that the May Fourth uh, figures would be largely yeah. unhappy with what they see today. Uh, uh, I think they would have been happier probably with uh, Jiang Zemin.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Liz, Jeremy.
0: Yeah, I sh- I share that view and um it it relates to my earlier concern that basically the top level of the party has sort of descended into the apparatchik phase um where you have um uh, s- people who are um, defending certainly the um, Chinese um, uh, sovereignty in a, in a highly nationalistic patriotic fashion, um, but a fashion that has lost a lot of the um, freewheeling, critical quality of the May 4th movement. And um, so I, I don't think that the early intellectual, obviously they would be delighted at the fact that China is now um, second and soon to be first largest economy in the world. They would be delighted that um, China is no longer in a century of humiliation and has emerged from that. And that clearly was a motivating concern for the May 4th generation. But the May 4th generation also, I think, really was motivated by a desire for freedom, Um, freedom from the restrictions of Confucian patriarchy, um, freedom for women um, to express themselves in ways that were not entirely um, controlled um, by family, and so on. And um, I think they would be pretty uncomfortable with the sort of straitjacket that the party um, in many ways has been trying to impose on um, people's intellectual imagination. Um, And um, it's kind of lack of cosmopolitanism in that that sense, so um, so I think it would be a very sort of bittersweet view on their part.
2: Yeah, Jeremy, I guess you win. Your man Jiang Zemin sits at the very <laughs> apex of China's Communist <laughs> Party history. It's like the 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 best we've ever had. It right.
4: The toad. The, toad yeah, the toad wins. <laughs> That's. I, I, I have to say, long live <laughs> the toad. The, you know, the, one of our favorite photos in the book, you know, because there's a, there's a score of photos. Is Jeremy got us the one of, of, of the toad,
2: the, the great inflatable toad with the Jiang Zemin glasses. Oh, yeah, You got that one. You know, I think we should all start wearing our pants up. Uh, Jeremy, Liz, Tim, it was so wonderful to be able to chat with you about the book. Again, the book is called The Chinese Communist Party, A Century in Ten Lives. It's edited by Tim Cheek, by Klaus Mulan, and by Hans Von Devin. pick up a copy if you haven't already it is truly excellent let's move on to recommendations before we do that i want to quickly remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. and if you like the work that we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the Seneca network show your support by subscribing to SubChina access our daily email newsletter put together by jeremy himself and of course lucas and all the other people on our team check it out check it out it's good stuff and it really does help so recommendations jeremy it's been a while man what do you got for us
3: Okay, well, first of all, I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to Tim and Klaus and Hans, because I think I was probably the worst contributor in terms of blowing deadlines, and I I really tried their patience, so I humbly apologize, humbly and publicly apologize for that. But in terms of recommendations, something that I've just got hold of... Based on a, a book review, and I've just started reading it. It's a it's an illustrated book by a writer and illustrator named Ben Katcher, or Kachor called The Dairy Restaurant. Um, and I I found this thing via I think somebody's tweet and read this um, New York Times review of it and. The tweet, who I apologize, I don't remember who came up with it, said it was maybe the most sort of Jewish New York story ever. And it's about Leon Trotsky, who spent uh, Uh a little bit of time in New York City uh, in 1917. And he was a vegetarian and kosher, I think. But anyway, he ate most of his meals in Jewish dairy restaurants in New York. Uh, And one of his favorites was uh, in the Bronx called The Triangle Dairy. So this book is a history, a a graphic history of these things. And uh, in the book, um, Katcher notes about Trotsky that he refused to tip, considering it an insult to the dignity of the waiters. And the waiters retaliated with poor service, accidental spillings of hot soup and insults. Anyway, so (laughs) that's my recommendation, the dairy restaurant.
2: He deserved the ice pick, uh, not tipping. (laughs) All right. Uh, uh, Liz, what do you have for us?
0: Um, Can I give you two recommendations?
2: Absolutely. You're absolutely welcome to.
0: Okay. And I'll show you how boring I am because both of those recommendations actually are about China. Um, But I think they really go wonderfully well with um, the book that we've been talking about today. um, Because like the book we've been talking about today, they really humanize rather than demonize China. And one is a book that's come out recently, um, written by um, Chung Li of the Brookings, um, and um, entitled uh, Middle Class Shanghai. And what's really wonderful about the book is the way in which um, Cheng talks about um, avant-garde art and all kinds of trends in Shanghai that are not terribly well-known outside of the city. And um, really shows you really just what a vibrant place it is. And despite our image of China as being increasingly drab and controlled by the Communist Party, that there is in fact uh, a tremendous amount going on um, uh, within the city's culture. So I I really think it's a a great book for um, people who would like to understand um, a little more about Perhaps the most dynamic and cause, certainly the most cosmopolitan city in China. And the other is a book by one of the chapter authors um, of the book we've been talking about, and that is um, Yang Guobin. And, um, you know, like Li Cheng in um, middle class Shanghai, um, Guobin, um, in his book, which actually hasn't come out yet but will come out very soon. Um, talks about a city, in his case, the city is Wuhan, and uh, he I think the title is Wuhan Under Lockdown. It's uh, the story of Wuhan after COVID-19 hit, and although Guo Bin himself was not there, he um, basically harvested all of these social media postings, these sort of lockdown diaries by dozens of people, Um, in Wuhan. And um, it's a really moving story about um, the panic, uh, the fear, the um, concern that people had in Wuhan, but also their um, heroism, uh, to some extent, and their sense of community and the sense that although they were giving up their freedom under lockdown, they felt they were doing this um, to keep other people safe. And I think it's really, it's, it's a very, um, uh, as I said, moving um, story of what this was like in the city um, where, you know, initially in our um, newspaper accounts in the U.S., this Wuhan lockdown was seen simply as a kind of top-down authoritarian control. Only China could do this, and what a violation of people's human rights to have put them through this kind of lockdown. Then later on, of course, we realized that is clearly uh, one of the most effective ways of controlling this sort of public health Um Epidemic. And um, so uh, Yang Guobin takes you really through the eyes of the people who were going through it and why they cooperated um, in many cases um, at considerable personal cost with the demands for the lockdown. So I recommend both of those books. Li and Yang uh, are the two um, authors Uh, Li on Shanghai, Yang on Wuhan and um, they're really um, very fascinating accounts of what life in two of China's largest and most vibrant cities uh, is like for ordinary citizens today.
2: Great, great recommendations. It's just hard for me to imagine Li Chung knowing him and having read his other stuff, just writing about the avant-garde art scene in in China. It's just hard for me to picture the guy doing that. Dark yeah. forms, very interesting. Dark yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Liz. Those are great. Tim, what you got for us? Well, you know, this is uh, this
4: is this is my pay on to uh, those who taught me that that uh, China
2: could be cool. <laughs> Thank you. you know what? I I have the original. Uh... <laughs> I have the original recording. <laughs> no, of that.
4: I want that to be my recommendation. Tang Dynasty. Oh, Goy okay. Goy.
2: One day, I mean, I'm thinking about packaging it as an NFT and trying to make a million dollars, but I have the original mm-hmm. recording of the demo we did for Goyzy uh which I play on. And, uh, and, you know, I, I did the arrangement for, so. I'm...
4: Well, then would you put that, put that one up? Cause I only have the, uh, the Spotify okay, okay. version. I had an LP disc I bought in the mid nineties and, uh, and I was like, Oh my god! <laughs> Heavy metal, uh, and of course, of course, it evoked for me um, uh,
2: "Star Spangled Banner" yeah, with Jimmy that's Hendrix. It was supposed to. That's the idea. It's funny because yeah. I I just showed that yesterday to my daughter. I I had her, you know I showed her uh, on YouTube, Hendrix playing "Star Spangled Banner" at Woodstock. Yeah. So, uh.
4: I, I have to
3: tell you a little story, if I may extend the podcast by a minute, relevant to this. We, we, one of the show. I haven't been on many shows recently, but one of the ones I did, I think it was a Dan Wang, um, and oh no, it was a Clubhouse Chat. Something I was on with Kaiser, and we had a guest on in a similar situation to we have now on this podcast, and the guest said somebody who I kind of looked at and thought, oh, I'm kind of his age. Uh, and then he said of Kaiser, yeah, you know, I've known about you a long time because my mom was a fan of your band. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's it's soul crushing. I get that all the time now. <laughs> wow, it's, it's, yeah, it's depressing. Oh, well, hey, so it goes
4: hey so put up if you can put up the link to your original yeah you know version, I'm thinking, about, thinking I
2: haven't released it yet I mean because it doesn't exist in the world right oh, okay, now I'm thinking not I haven't put it out it's it's right here I mean I'm, sh- I'm holding up this little cassette player it's mm-hmm. the only place in the world that I know that it exists is on this cassette tape so there's also uh well <laughs> and uh Pai and face yang those those four songs are on this this demo tape and they're really interesting versions of them. The lyrics are different on Boyat Halbi and all uh, it's anyway. The Guajiga version doesn't have the Russian choir obviously and it doesn't have that second verse that was sings solo, which I think is the it was really inspired. I'm really glad that we did that. But uh it's all it's all of us singing together and it's it sounds like sort of a mob of drunks singing the Guajiga. But uh <laughs> anyway, so it goes. I, I, let me get my recommendation in. It's really boring. I mean, after that, I'm but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I have to recommend the July August edition of Foreign Affairs, which is really foc- it focused entirely on China. Uh, the two essays in particular, I think, well, there's really good ones from our friends like Jude Blanchette and, and Yuan Yuan and Orville Schell. But um, the two that I think I, I, I really commend are the the essays by Wang Tisu and uh, you know mm. who is the president of the Institute of, for International Studies at Beida, and Yuan Tong who is the dean of the Institute of International Relations at Tsinghua. So two very, very eminent uh, Chinese scholars. And with, with different—usually, you know, they're considered to be, you know, uh, in, in the case of, of Yan, he's fairly hawkish. He's a liberal hawk, and then, you know, uh, Wang is, is more of a liberal. But uh, they're very good. They're, they're, they're very thought-provoking, and I think they, they really need to be read right now in this moment— Um, I'm not sure of the order in which we are going to be releasing podcasts, but listeners may have already heard a chat uh, with Tom uh, Papinski and Jessica Chen Weiss from Cornell about this particular uh, – about foreign affairs and some of the essays that have been in it uh, because they contributed something that was uh, in foreign affairs online, and we had to talk about that. In any case, Liz and Tim, what a a pleasure. And Jeremy, so great to have you back on. Uh, uh, Congratulations on the book. I'm sure it's going to be. It's already been very, very well received, and uh, I I hope that uh, everyone rushes out and buys it. I had asked our listeners to do that a couple of weeks ago in preparation for this, uh, to listen to it, you know, to have read it beforehand, and hopefully some of them did. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Kaiser.
2: Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Kaiser. Yeah, great to see you, Jeremy. The Cineca podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Cineca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason LeGronel. Drop us an email at Cineca at subchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Cineca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.